Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. Um, this is episode number 40 of Other Minds and Hands, and I am sadly alone today. No Maggie. Maggie is traveling for the next two weeks, uh, so I am on my own with you guys here this afternoon, but I am looking forward to a discussion uh, of a recent, a new adaptation project uh, that... Um, uh, I think many of you have uh, have recently seen, and which is very exciting to me, and that is the Dungeons and Dragons movie, Dungeons and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves. Um, I just little background. I've been I've been a Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons player since high school. Um, I uh, I go back to I played a little bit in the first edition. I mostly uh, my focal point was. Uh, I, I, my, my, the, the heart of my early play, uh, was in second edition actually. Um, and, uh, I've been playing with my family, fifth edition and stuff with my kids, uh, uh, and friends for years. So I'm a, a big fan of Dungeons and Dragons in general, know the system really well. Um, and, uh, and, and the world relatively well. I say the world relatively well. First of all, let me make sure to people who don't know the, know it perhaps, uh, perfectly well. There are a couple different things. This is very relevant to the question of the adaptation that we're seeing, because um, uh, there are a couple different factors in play here, right? On the one hand, you have the mechanics of the gameplay system, like the rule set, right? And the structure for how classes work, races work, you know, uh, how action, you know, the outcomes of actions are determined and all these kinds of things. Um, there's that on the one hand with D&D. Then there's also this fictional world. There is this sort of standard world that's been built, you know, the world of the Sword Coast. And uh, many people know that from video games as well or better than they know um, than they know it from the Dungeons and Dragons world. Um, if you've played games like Baldur's Gate or Neverwinter Nights, I know I'm dating myself uh, with those, though I think those two games, like the original Baldur's Gate and the original uh, Neverwinter Nights, are two of the, like, all-time classics of, uh, you know, uh, RPG uh, uh, video game experience. Um, but um, anyway, uh, all of... Uh, so th there's there's this whole you know this whole world and cities and 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 stories and some characters and things uh, that are sort of standard and serve as a standard backdrop for a lot of the particular adventures. Many people who play D and D play within that world. Um, uh, basically, the people at uh, Wizards of the Coast have produced this, you know, have sort of created this secondary world in order to give people who want to run Dungeons and Dragons games the opportunity to sort of have a, um, uh, to have a, a sort of a standard world so they don't have to invent everything from scratch. But lots of people like to invent everything from scratch. And I'm actually one of those people who likes to invent everything from scratch. So in a, most of my gameplay, um, I have not actually played within and dealt with the world, um, you know, the, the, of the, you know, the, the, the world of, of, you know, Faerun and uh, the Sword Coast and everything. Uh, I know that actually better from video games than I know it from uh, from D and D itself because usually um, most campaigns that I've been in I've been running and most of the times I run my own campaigns I make stuff up. So um, anyway, uh, just a little little bit of background uh, there. But um, anyway, so there is um, 
Uh, my first question when going to the Dungeons and Dragons movie, uh, or really my first question when hearing about the Dungeons and Dragons movie, but I actually learned almost nothing. Um, I I learned almost nothing about the movie before I went to see it. I I, I was a I was an almost perfectly clean slate when I went to see the film, which I just saw uh, a few days ago on Saturday with my family, and. Um, my first question was, what exactly, like, what is this film going to be? Like, what, what are they adapting? Um, one of the things, of course, that is most fascinating initially about the project of producing a D&D movie is exactly, like, what is the source text? Like, what exactly is the thing that you are working from? You know, if you're making a Lord of the Rings film, I know what your source text is going to be, right? That's pretty clear. When you're making a Mansfield Park movie, I know what your source text is, right? Um, but when you're making a Dungeons and Dragons movie, um, it is um, uh, it is very it's it's a different situation, right? So as I was going to the movie, in fact, I was talking about this with my family in the car as we were driving there. I'm like, okay. I can see, knowing nothing, um, I can see three different ways, like three different levels on which they could approach the situation, uh, you know, this adaptation. Um, one, and the simplest level, would be to just tell a fantasy story that takes place kind of within the D and D world, you know, it takes place in the sword coast and, um, you know, that like somebody who knows nothing at all about anything, uh, would, um, uh, would be able to, so it's basically just a fantasy story that uh, like li lives within that secondary world, essentially. The second level of adaptation would be presumably something like that, but which also was doing some thoughtful adaptation of the actual gameplay system as well. You know, one of the questions my son and I were talking about as we were going in, we we're like, yeah, so uh, are we going to be able to guess what level these characters are, uh, like based upon which spells they cast, right? You know, um, uh, and this is something, you know, my son and I were like keeping tabs on as we went through, you know, we we're like, okay, so like, you know, Somebody cast fireball. We know they're at least fifth level, and you know, and and and, and also questions like, so are we, um, uh, are we going to be, are we going to see them progress? Like, are characters going to level up during the film? Like, is there going to be, is the film going to be doing any kind of treatment of because this is, you know, obviously the kind of stair step leveling that you do almost inevitably in role playing games, um, is a little awkward for movie-based storytelling, but is a really uh, substantial element in the D&D gameplay. Um, is there going to be a point? Like, will we have a point in the story where, like, essentially, they don't they don't maybe talk about it this way, right? But that they sort of, you know, where we were, we're going to see a character level up. Um, and then, so, but again, so that's sort of the second level. Are they going to be trying to adapt not just the story world that the Wizards of the Coast have created for folks, um, but also the gameplay as well. And then the third layer of adaptation that I was 
that I could see them doing or attempting to do would be the actual player experience, right? The way in which stories develop by playing Dungeons and Dragons, the kind of collaborative stories that emerge. That's the fun of D&D. It's why I, well, I, the fun, the fun that I find in it anyway, is this, uh, everybody in real time participating in making a story, which nobody knows exactly how it's going to end. Um, and, uh, so that, you know, and that could be done in a bunch of different ways. Like even to the extent, like one possibility, right. Uh, that I was anticipating is, is there actually going to be a frame, like a real modern world frame, um, which would have been one way to approach it. Right. So that's like the third level where they actually try to in incorporate into their adaptation, the whole game playing experience on the part of the players. Um, and then the there's that there's that 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 second level where they're adapting not only the world but they're also adapting the gameplay and the sort of the most basic level where they are adapting just the world. Okay, so that was those that was my my my, my biggest set of questions when I went into the film. Um, and I don't know what you guys think. So first of all, let me draw your attention. Um, Phil is in uh, Phil Boswell here is industriously collecting questions, which is very very helpful um, because I often I, I will try to follow the uh, the chat as we go through, but um, Phil will collect them for me. So just kind of flag your question, like if you put all caps question, then Phil can flag it and I can see it. And I definitely am going to be relying on Phil and on your questions today. I uh, really am interested to hear what you guys think and to talk about the things that you guys are most interested in here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay. Um, oh, Highlander Winds had a question about Free League publishing releasing the 5e version of the Lord of the Rings role-playing. Um, uh, no, I wasn't planning on talking about that. I want to talk about the film uh, as an adaptation project. Mm -hmm. um, though I will say, um, the 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 sort of five E Lord of the Rings skin uh, that I've is fascinating. I think like that's actually a really interesting piece of adaptation itself. But it's a totally different project, and I don't want to get too distracted talking. And and I don't th I haven't seen the recent one. I only saw one that was. The one that was ex in existence a, a couple years back, um, but uh, anyway, so I'm uh, I'm not going to talk about that because I don't know enough about that to talk about it. Um, but um, uh, but in any case, I want to I want to talk about um, uh, I, I want to talk about the movie. So I felt this is the first thing. You know, my my big question, what is this movie and what is it trying to do? Like, what, what kind of adaptation is it trying to be? Um, I, initially, I was like, you know, from the first five seconds, I was like, okay, one, level one. This is going to be a, no frame. This is going to be a fantasy movie uh, that is... Um, you know, that's taking place in the Sword Coast. It was going, like I was recognizing names and things right away. Um, so... Uh, I, it was that was that was that that was pretty clear, and then my question became what um, what to what extent is it going to go up to? So it's pretty clear it wasn't going to be level three. Um, is it going to be level two in some sense? Now, by the way, as an example of level three, 
um, where you're actually doing an adaptation of the gameplay mode, the interaction between the modern person and the gaming world. Um, I would point back to, I, I don't know, I mean, talk about dating myself. I'm about to date myself even more, right? Um, I don't know how many of you saw the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon from the 1980s, but that was a level three adaptation. Um, the premise, if you recall, now I didn't, uh, I didn't get to see a whole lot of uh, uh, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon in the '80s, mostly uh, because um, my sister and I didn't see eye to eye on this on this subject, <laughs> and there were some compromises that had to be made with our television, our one television, uh, <laughs> back in those days. But, um, uh. But the, the basic premise of the 1980s Dungeons & Dragons cartoon is that it was, it was almost like um, it was sort of similar to the premise of the recent Jumanji film, um, where a group of modern people uh, find themselves like unexpectedly and magically transported into the Dungeons and Dragons world. And they're each one of them, you know, they each have a character, but like they become their characters. Right. Um, so sort of the, uh, and, and so in, in, and then, you know, they're trying to, like, and so they're on a quest together and ultimately they're trying to get home. They're trying to escape the world and get home. Um, and uh, the, so, but, but you can see how that premise serves uh, as an adaptation on that third level. Right, where they actually are taking a sort of a fictionalized version of what the role-playing experience is like, right? Where you, the modern person, sit down and you adopt the role of this, you know, fantasy character, right, in a fantasy setting, um, and you, you know, decide for that character and you act out what that character does. Um, this sort of magical transportation that happened in the frame um, of. Uh, uh, of the old D&D cartoon was um, that, that was a really fun way of kind of embedding this idea of them. And so the characters were like what you had in the old D&D cartoon were fantasy characters in a fantasy world, but like with the mentality of modern people who were, you know, uh, like running those characters essentially, um, so it was actually a really, really interesting way in which the old cartoon actually did try to do an adaptation, not just of the world, not just of the gameplay, but of the um, of that experience of bringing modern people into an imaginative engagement with the fantasy world. Um, and oh my goodness, curious Jean, my wife and I went bonkers uh, at the uh, at that Easter egg. So again, people who don't know the 1980s cartoon missed out on this, uh, which is if you've seen so if you've seen the film at the end or near the end uh, when they're in the arena, uh, you may remember there are like two other groups that you know are raised up through the floor uh, like they are uh, in in the arena, um, and one of those groups is the group from the 1980s cartoon like it's it's exactly the party with exactly the costuming um it's the group it, it's the the very brightly colored <laughs> clothing group that was in the cage right before uh you know they escaped through the gelatinous cube at the end um 
So uh, that that was that was <laughs> my wife, to whom the D and D cartoon was very dear when she was growing up. Um, <laughs> was immediately like <gasps> she was like grabbing me in the theater and stuff when that happened. It was so cool. Um, but uh, anyway, so. But as I said, I did not see that 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 sort of third level, um, um, that third level wasn't, I thought, really there. Now, Curious Dean, that is interesting. I was thinking about that. Um, one of the effects, the the arena, right? Um, the arena has uh, all these squares, right? Which are, you know, which were coming up and going down, right? In columns and whatever. And so that kind of masked the fact, uh, in a sense, right? Like that, it, because you're mostly seeing it from the point of view of the, you know, of the of the characters, and so it was mostly like walls that were going away, uh, going and coming and stuff. But of course, yeah, it was a battle map, right? It was a it was like a big old piece of graph paper where you were marking like where the walls were and everything. So um, the way in which that arena confrontation at the end um, <clears throat> was. Uh, it was it, there was a it, it was a very like meta uh, sort of gaming situation uh, depiction, um, so I really like that. Now again, I um, I don't that like almost touches on that third level of adaptation, right? Um, but it, it only does so in a kind of an Easter eggy way. That is, it, it doesn't it didn't really seem to be woven into the fabric of it. I do think in the end, um, I would categorize it this film is like level two, essentially, where they weren't really trying to adapt um, the story. The, the adaptation they were doing was not really that like highest meta level of the um, of the role playing game experience on the part of the modern player. But I do think that they were uh, doing a very interesting job of integrating not only the world of D&D, that sort of lowest level of like, just let's tell a story that happens within this secondary world. Um, but also that second level where they were taking the gameplay mechanics themselves and integrating that into the sort of conception of the story. Um, uh, let's see. So Phil is asking, weren't they supposed to be literally children? Oh, what? You mean the, the D&D? &D? The, the cartoon? Yeah, the cartoon. It was, they were like teenagers, basically. Uh, they were like teenagers uh, with one of them who was like the like annoying little brother or little sibling. I don't even remember. Um, but yeah, there was like one annoying little sibling. So it was like, uh, which again, classic sort of D&D &D setup, right? Where you've got like teenagers coming together and like one person like brings along their annoying kid. Yeah, Bobby the Barbarian was a preteen. Exactly, exactly. Um, so yes, yeah, so you had the one annoying little brother, which again, like, maps onto a common real world uh, circumstance where you've got a bunch of friends together and like somebody's kid brother like wants to tag along and is annoying to m most. Um, that was a that was a known phenomenon. Um, but uh, anyway, so I thought that was that was um, uh, again, that was so much fun that uh, that show was a lot of fun and that uh, uh, that that cameo was was absolutely fantastic. Um, but let's talk about Let's talk about that second level. Let's talk about the gameplay. So the, the story itself, um, th that is the sort of level one adaptation. In the level one adaptation, I would classify this, of course, like technically as a fill in the blanks, as this was not trying to depict. A there was no source text for the story itself. 
right? There was no, like, I am not aware of, like, anywhere where this story and these characters has been told. It, maybe it has, and I just don't know about it. Um, but, um, uh, but I certainly was not going in conscious of that kind of a relationship with the source text where it's just a retelling adaptation of a, previ of a previously established story. Um, but, um, uh, but it was, it's, but it's funny, I'm thinking of my three categories, right? The, the retelling adaptation, the fill in the blanks adaptation, uh, and that kind of modulation adaptation. Um, those, um, uh, it's clearly in the second category. It's a fill in the blanks. It's taking place within the world, right? But it's telling a story that isn't told there, but it, 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 it doesn't feel quite right to call it fill in the blanks because, the D&D world is, is, is not about, like, a canonical story that might have, you know, blanks to be filled in. It's designed to be a world in which adventures can happen. So, um, Druid's Fire, exactly right. It is, uh, it is like a homebrew story or like a new module, you know, uh, written, again, for those who are not familiar, uh, modules, right, are what they call, like, a, you know, a, a, a written, if somebody writes a an official adventure, so you don't have to make up your own adventure. Um, that was always called a, a module from back in the old days. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, so, um, uh, so yeah, so it was, it was very much in that. Uh, and so, again, thinking about it as sort of a level one adaptation, there were some interesting elements there in thinking about, like, how the city of Neverwinter was depicted, for instance, and um, uh, which, of course, that's where... Um, uh, you know, Forge becomes Lord of Neverwinter. Um, there were, uh, you know, there was Icewind Dale, which was what the uh, where the prison was at the beginning. Um, uh, you know, there were there were references to other places, like there's a reference to Baldur's Gate. There was a reference to Waterdeep. Uh, so again, lots of you know, there were um, references to like Elminster, who is a you know one of those class. Uh, yeah. The role of Elminster is he's he's one of those. Um, like great wizards of the past who like when you need uh, when you need a name to put in to cite like a, a wizard who did a really impressive thing in the past. Elminster is one of the ones that gets uh, that gets brought up uh, about. Um, and yes, uh, Voice of Geekdom, exactly. Uh, there were Forgotten Realms characters that were dropped. Um, uh, Zast, uh, Zastam is a real D&D &D villain. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and um, uh, <laughs> thank, th thank you, Adrian. I appreciate your compliment. Um, but, um, but yeah, so uh, there, there was definitely, and you know, even, and like the whole, the making of the Red Wizards of Thay as the, you know, sort of the villains uh, of the story, um, certainly would have surprised no one who's ever played a, uh, you know, a D and D world video game as the Red Wizards of Thay are always the bad guys. <laughs> and they're not always the central villain, but they're always the bad guys. Um, uh, that's like their whole job is to be like, hi, we are the evil empire lurking on the uh, the outside with people who do horrible things like slavery and, uh, you know, human sacrifice and stuff like that. So that uh, in case you need an evil character to do horrible things or to tempt people to agree to horrible bargains or something like that. You as, as a, as a dungeon master can always bring in a red wizard of Thay. Um, but anyway, yeah, so there was, there was, there was a lot of that stuff. I found myself, uh, really fascinated about the second level though, 
thinking about, because it became clear fairly quickly that they were making, I thought, some very interesting decisions about how they were going to adapt um, the, the gameplay, right? Um, the actual sort of rule set, um, what the relationship with the rule set was going to be. And this, again, this is something that my son and I were talking a lot about, both before and after the film. Um, you know, what they were going to do and then what they did do in thinking about the relationship between... Because on the one hand, we they did as we expected um, that they would clearly identify particular character classes, right? Um, uh, in the film. Uh, and that they would be depicting those. And that, and, you know, we were going to... You know, we were you know, all prepared to be looking with great interest and very closely at how the way they depicted these particular classes compared and contrasted with the, you know, the actual strengths and weaknesses and de uh, depictions of the class, you know, sort of details of the class uh, in the five, the five the E rule set, the fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons rule set. Um, and not only classes, also races. This was another question we had. Are they going to be integrating? Um, there's been a, a very great diversification over the course of the last, you know, 10, 20 years um, of uh, playable races in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, so, and they, they did, it was a little bit cameo-like. I mean, all, almost all of the main character. I mean, the, with the exception of, oh, and I'm forgetting names. I'm going to forget names frequently because um, I've only seen the film once. So uh, things like people's, what was the name of the, the, the tiefling druid in the, in the party? D was it Dora? 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 Uh, Being the D. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. Um, but um, Doric. Yes, there we go. Doric. Um, she was a tiefling. So she was, she was non-human. Um, and she was like double non-human because she was herself a non-human and she had been living with the elves. Uh, so she was uh, she was sort of a double non-human uh, from her background and context. Um, but most of the characters were human. So it was a, it was a, it, the, the main characters were dominantly human. They didn't have a really mixed party, which I was, I didn't think they would. I was going to be surprised if there were going to be like five or six main characters and one of them was going to be an elf and one of them was going to be a dragonborn and one of them was going to be, you know, an Azamar and one of them, you know, like all, all kinds of, all kinds of different things. Um, I, I, I would have been pretty surprised if they had tried to pull that off. And they didn't really. The tiefling was um, um, the furthest they went there. Um, I was a little disappointed, actually, in the depiction of the tiefling. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, the, I, I think the wizard was has, was was a half elf, um, the sorcerer. You mean Simon, Simon the sorcerer, right? Um, he might have been a half elf. Uh, I'm not really sure, but um, uh, yeah, uh, right. Voice of Geekdom says. Uh, Wizards of the Coast actually released stat blocks for the main characters. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me in the least bit. Though, I'd be kind of interested to see them, though, Voice of Geekdom, because this is um, this is something that I found very interesting. Okay, so I want to come to, um, yeah, Voice of Geekdom, one of the observations that you were just making. Um, Chris Pine's character, so the protagonist, like the central figure of the story, the leader of the party, 
Um, he's clearly a bard. Like, that's explicit. They didn't use the word. I was waiting for them to make jokes about him being a bard. I don't recall if they ever even actually once uttered the word bard uh, in the film. If they did, it was brief, near the beginning, and didn't come up again. Because I kept waiting for it, and it never really came up. But I, I think it's clear he's a bard, right? Um, you know, the whole loot thing. Um, he, he does call himself a lutenist at one point, but... Um, uh, but he never actually identifies himself as a bard. But he's clearly a bard. Um, but as... Um, now, he was a harper, but that's his faction. Yeah, that's his faction, not his class. Um, the paladin, who was clearly a paladin, and explicitly a paladin, was also uh, a harper, of course. Um, just as uh, Doric, the druid, uh, was a member of the em Emerald Enclave. Right? So, again, it's a faction. It's not a... Um, it's not a class. So, um, uh, okay. Um, oh, you have to log into D&D Beyond in order to see the stat box. I see. No, that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. I've, um, I've, uh, I've gotten some of the D&D Beyond. I've heard about some of the D&D Beyond stuff, uh, from my advanced scout, namely my son, who has been looking at, uh, a bunch of it. Uh, but I haven't time to, had time to sit down with it myself. Anyway, okay, so he's clearly a bard, but Voice of Geekdom, exactly as you say, um, he is, he doesn't do magic. He never casts a singular spell. There is no indication that he has any magic ability whatsoever. Um, he sings songs, right, on a couple of occasions and in a couple of different contexts, but it's also, there's no indication that his song does anything. It was the, the one place where they did something kind of bard-esque. And when I say bard-esque, I mean like the character class as it's defined in 5e. Was when uh, Holga comes out from the meeting with her ex-husband and um, is feeling down and he starts singing the song and she joins, she cheers up and joins in. Right. It's like he's had through his music had some influence on her in like raising her spirits. Right. That moment was, was the most bard esque moment of his character in the entire film. Um, and, but, but it was very, um, uh, it was very, Im uh, it was very, again. It was it was very slight. It was very it was very sort of background in a sense. Well, that wasn't background. It was I mean, it was a prominent moment, um, but th like as a class ability or something. Like he he never. The bard never does anything, bardly. Like he never uses a bard skill, or a bard spell in combat ever ever ever. Um, now. That, I thought, was a really fascinating and successful adaptation choice. Um, that is, I thought that was kind of hilarious. Because bards in D&D gameplay are kind of useless. <laughs> They're fun. I love bards. And I've played a bard. Um <laughs> but they're not really very effective. They're, you know, they're this, uh, you know, like they have the jack of all trades skill. Like they, they don't do anything well, right? They have scale, uh, they have spells, but not great spells. Uh, they can heal, but not much. 
Uh, they can, uh, you know, steal and do thief abilities, but not as well as thieves. Um, that like they can play songs, but it's uh, not a huge effect uh, to their songs. Um, it's um, yeah, they're a support class at best. Druid's fire, exactly. Um, and so, they're de- the way that they they basically took this class, which is already essentially a weak class in Dungeons and Dragons. And nerfed it for the film so that he's literally useless. But of course, the irony is that he's also the, he's also the hero. He's also the leader of the party. And that beca- that's his entire role. I mean, when Doric was asking, what do you contribute to this party? Right. I mean, she she's she she asks the question explicitly and being forced to answer. All he has is he's like, I come up with the plans. And then she's like, so once you've come up with a plan, you have no role anymore. We don't, we, don't, we don't need you. We could get somebody else more useful to execute the plan. And he's like, well, but then if something goes wrong, you need me to make up a new plan. And she's like, so you make up plans that fail, right? Anyway, um, that's, um, that's, that's, there, was, there, was, there was that explicit scene playing on the fact that, that he, as a bard, didn't really have a particular role. But again, far from just making that a sort of a side joke. It was the, he was the hero. He was the protagonist, right? They put it front and center. But I thought, Dan, just kind of coming back to your question specifically, I thought that it was a very significant choice that they made, um, that they made him the hero. Because if I had to point to the biggest thing, the biggest, most significant adaptation choice they made on that second level, Right where they, t- you know, taking the the gameplay, uh, the gameplay rules, right, the, the definitions of class and class abilities and stuff like that. Um, the number one largest decision that they made was the way that they de-emphasized magic throughout consistently. They didn't remove it, right? There was still Simon the Sorcerer. There was still the Red Wizards of Thay doing magic. Right. That was the it's not that they made the world a world without magic, but the casting of spells. Almost nobody cast. There was some spell casting finally at the end, but all across the board, all spell casting was almost completely removed. The bard does not apparently have spell casting abilities. And that, by the way, for people who are old and crusty enough like me to remember well earlier editions of D&D, that was one of the very significant changes that they made in 5th edition. The 5th edition bard, the 5e bard, is much more centrally a spellcaster. Um, I mean, that's kind of the, the... I mean, you'd put him in spellcaster group almost as much as you... as, as readily as you'd put him in with, like, rogues, basically. Um, but, um, but anyway, it's, it's, they, they really um, emphasized the spellcasting abilities of bards in 5e and in the film totally removed no spellcasting abilities whatsoever the druid no spellcasting the druid did not ever cast a single spell the druid uses wild shape all the time right but the druid the powers of the druid in the film as far as i could tell were completely limited like the identity of what it is to be a druid became simply shape changer it was just the wild shape ability, even to the point where I thought this was a, a really weird turn of phrase. 
Um, Wild Shape, of course, is the name of the class ability that druids have to take to change their shape and take on the form of beasts. And there was that one moment you remember when she, when Doric the druid, uh, infiltrates Neverwinter and is spying in the form of a fly, right? Um, and she's spying on the with the you know the the red wizard in it, right? And she is detected, like the red wizard senses that the druid in disguise is there, and she says what she actually the line that she delivers because it struck me as so strange. She's like. There is a wild shape present, right? And I'm like, well, there's a druid present who is utilizing wild shape. But even just to refer to the druid in, like, like the, the phrase wild shape was literally used as like a synonym for druid. <laughs> there, do, do, do you see what I mean? Like, it, it was a turn of phrase that was really striking to me because I was like, well, yeah, that's basically, that's basically what they did uh, to the druid class was they made it into merely a shapeshifter. And that was cool. Like, what they did with the shapeshifting was great. And I loved the creativity there. Um, and yes, it is absolutely true. Um, uh, Phil, uh, saying you've seen a couple folks saying that she uses a lot more forms than might be expected. Well, that's a vast understatement, right? So at, um, at low levels, you can change forms like once or twice a day. Um, and she was like, going through forms she clearly had infinite shape changing abilities like she could change into any shape there's also like level based things where you can only change shape into into a terrestrial like basically to to turn into a, a swimming creature or a flying creature um that's a that's a higher level ability like they they, they don't want at first level you to be able to become like a, a, a fly for instance um or a fish so I don't remember offhand the levels. I think it's at level like five or seven that you can that you get uh, swimming um, uh, creatures, and then it's uh, higher, like maybe level eight or ten or something like that, um, where you can become a where you can become a, a, a flying creature. Uh, but but in any case, coming back to my central point here, no spells, no spells. She never cast a single spell at any point in the entire show and druids were uh were are they're they're like a, a cleric class they're, they're not the same as clerics but they're they're a divine casting um uh you know they're a divine magic class um so again they're spell casting they're the wild shape it's a secondary thing like they are spell casters who also can change their shape um and uh, anyway, so it's it, that was a huge change. It was a huge, huge decision to say we're gonna we're gonna lean way into the shape changing, but more but we're gonna limit it. She, she, she's not gonna cast spells. And even the sorcerer, even the sorcerer, how many spells did he cast? Three, maybe. Most of the magic he does is through magic items. That's what we see from him. Um, that's what we see from him at the beginning, right? In his little fake performance that he's doing and he's robbing from everybody. Um, he's using magical items. Uh, he, has, he has a series of magical items. And of course, like the whole central plot feature of the sorcerer at the end was him successfully attuning a magical object, not him successfully casting a spell. Now, again, he does do some actual spell casting in the, the final boss fight scene. 
right? The, and some of those were some fairly recognizable spells. Um, my son next to me was like, Firebolt! He just cast Firebolt, which is a cantrip. It's a really low-level spell. But anyway, like that was that was that was that was, that was clearly happening. Um, and there was uh, at least an allusion to the Bigby's hand spells, right? That he was ca- the the rock hand that he was doing, though specifically that it was made out of rocks was a um, a, a different kind of thing. Um, and it was like several of the Bigby's hand spells at once. It was like the grasping hand and the... Uh, anyway, uh, so th- th- there were... there were. Th- I'm not saying there were no spells, but again, way, way downplayed. How many Before that last fight, how many times does he actually cast a spell? Like a, an observable spell, like use the spellcasting ability. And sorcerers are 100% a spellcasting class. They, they don't do anything else, right? That's all they do. And yet... He he barely casts a spell. He's mostly responsible for magic items. Um, it was a remarkable choice that they made uh, in their adaptation to say, we're going to reduce spellcasting to something just above zero in this film. Now, again, I'm not complaining about this. I'm just saying it was a very, to me, it was one of the biggest, weightiest adaptation choices that I could see them making. And I thought it had some really interesting side effects. Um, now I come back to the point that they not only removed the um, they not only removed spellcasting from the bard class entirely, but they made the non-spellcasting bard the hero of the story and the center, you know, the leader of the party. Um, that was of that in my opinion strongly compounded their decision to reduce or eliminate spellcasting uh from the entire story um and i yeah think how much more the film focuses throughout on magic items than on magic spells. Um, the one who's casting spells all the time is the the red wizard, right? The 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 central evil character. Um, and this really makes her um, this really makes her stand out, right? Um, I mean, I you know Simon says at one point her magic is on a whole other level. And I was kind of laughing to myself. I'm like, yeah, because she actually casts spells. <laughs> That's what makes her different. But again, think about where that placed us in our viewer responses to the film. The one person, the only person on screen who was doing magic, who was casting spells all the time, was the evil bad guy. Like it was... Casting spells became something that was almost associated with evil bad people, right? With being an evil bad guy. Especially since the Red Wizards, the word wizard, the only time the word wizard was used was when it was describing the Red Wizards, this group of villainous, undead villains, right? Um, So it was associated... There is a sense in which magic, the casting of spells, was associated with evil in this film. 
And I thought that was fascinating, really fascinating. Um, here's another side thing that I would point to. Arcane spellcasting I, I relegated almost entirely to the Red Wizards. Again, Simon does very little of it for a professional sorcerer. Um, and almost all the magic he does is through magic items. How about divine spellcasting? Was a single divine spell cast at any point in that film? Even one divine spell? I don't think so. The druid had no spells. There were no clerics to be seen. There was only one allusion to clerics in the entire show. There was, um, we got no clerics. We, got, we saw no divine magic of any kind. So, again, one of the biggest, most significant choices, I thought, was the de-emphasis on magic. The party had no healer, Phil. There's no healer in the party. Healing wasn't a thing. Nobody got healed with one significant exception, but that was through a magic item. Not only a magic item, an artifact. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that in too much detail because I'm, I'm trying to kind of avoid spoilers, which is actually not even all that hard to do in talking about this film because I'm actually only like a little bit interested in the story. I mean, I am interested in the story. I like guess as a film viewer, I was, I, was, I, was, I was enjoying the story. But when thinking about it as an adaptation, because it's not adapting a story, the actual narrative and like what happens and how it ends and everything like that, things that spoilers are normally about, doesn't really enter into this analysis all that much, right? Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so, um, so yes, not only did the party not have a healer, Phil, there, no, there, there, there weren't any healers. There was only, again, there was only one point when, he, when healing was even alluded to, and the allusion to it was to the fact that it wouldn't have worked in this instance. That, like, any healing that might have been found would have been useless in this case. Um, so, yeah, that was really interesting. Um, uh, okay, so, spellcasting. People doing magic. They were interacting with a world that was magical. Like they were interacting with a fantasy world. There were magical items. There were magical creatures. Um, but almost never did we see somebody, very, very rarely, do we see even core spellcasting classes performing magic and others, even other classes like Druid and Bard, which are in D&D thoroughgoing spell spellcasting classes um where i mean it's one again it's one of the very noticeable features of of 5e of fifth edition dungeons and dragons is like everybody casts spells now right i mean you you have to go pretty far out of your way to play a character who doesn't cast spells and indeed even the classic non-spell casting um uh uh classes like fighter and thief as it was called in second edition, uh, rogue, as it's called now, um, still still have options. You can still choose to be an eldritch knight or uh, uh, you know uh, oh what's the name of the thief specialization um, archetype that casts spells. I forget. Anyway, 
you can still have they, like don't worry spell casting is still available to you right like they 5e goes so far out of its way to like make anybody be able to cast spells if you want to um even if you want to play a fighter you can still be a spell casting fighter which was arcane trickster thank you dan i i, I forgot that um anyway uh the the um as I say, it's a it's a it's a core feature. It's a noticeable feature about Five E. They leaned way into spellcasting, and the movie leans as hard away from it, much harder away from it, even. Um, so, here's what I couldn't help but wonder. Note, I'm going to signal. This is me departing direct analysis of the film and entering into speculation. Um, but indulge me for a minute. Many of you know D and D has been a has been controversial in some circles for a long time, especially in religious circles, especially in conservative Christian circles. I have a great deal of personal experience in that regard, um, as I have never seen eye to eye with my own immediate family. I don't mean my wife and kids. I mean my parents and siblings um, about uh, about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, many of you might be old enough to remember the whole uh, D&D is a satanic cult uh, sort of thing that was going on. Um, uh, yes, D&D is a gateway to Satanism thing. Uh, exactly. Yes, that was huge in the 80s and 90s, still around. Um, and one of the primary fixations um, when you asked someone, and again, I speak, um, I speak of this phenomenon as somebody who has a a substantial personal experience having these conversations with people who are in this camp. Um, the satanic panic, that's exactly right. Um, and I, what's more, I speak as someone who has great love and respect for people who were very strongly in that D&D &D satanic camp. Um, so I am I I am I, I intend absolutely no like scorn or mockery towards people who had that concern. I never did share it, still don't share it. Still sometimes have these conversations with my own siblings um uh about this question. But I think I found myself reflecting after watching the film. The first thing I did was notice the lack of spellcasting. It was very striking to me throughout the film. I was like, wow, so little magic. So weird. So non-5e, right? I mean, like, wow. Like, why do they go? I, I, so that I kept asking myself that question. Why would they go in that direction? Why, why does the adaptation make that choice, which is so strongly 
pointing in the opposite direction than the choices that 5e has made and keep making like every revision every new class archetype that they come out with is more and more and more magical right every single new race that they come up with has like more and more magic like abilities right um and yet the film which was totally invested in like the Dungeons and Dragons brand, like totally, it, uh, you know, was seemed designed to be a sort of a, you know, I don't know what, uh, uh, outreach, right? For Dungeons and Dragons, right? I mean, it was like a big old, um, and again, I'm, this is not, not a criticism and I'm, I'm not saying that I, for this reason, I think it was a bad film or anything like that. I thought it was a great film. I loved it. But, um, that I, um, I was surprised. So I was, I was surprised at perceiving what felt to me like a totally different investment. Imagine like in, in the world, this seemed to me so huge such that I kept finding myself asking the question, why, why this difference? And I kept coming back to my own experience with the people who think, and by the way, same, same group of people and for the same reasons, um, who were thought that Harry Potter was satanic for the same reasons. Right. Um, uh, because it's like encouraging people to imagine casting spells and doing magic. It's the people casting spells. That was always. And again, personal, I speak as somebody who has had many of these conversations with people in these camps. Like, what is it like? Why do you think, uh, you know, this is like a gateway to Satanism? I don't understand. Um, uh, always near the very top of that list was always spellcasting, personal spellcasting. Um, and that's exactly the most noticeable thing that was played down. I, I could not help but notice that was the number one thing that was played down in the film. And then, of course, on top of this, I noticed the utter absence of divine spellcasting. It's not that they didn't allude to other gods. They did. They had the, they made reference to the pantheon, um, the, the, you know, the, the pantheon of the Sword Coast um, within that secondary world. So like other gods from that world were in fact alluded. They didn't avoid that entirely. Um, they didn't avoid that at all. They didn't make it central exactly to the storyline, um, but, but they did talk about it. Um, but they didn't have divine spellcasters with, again, the possible exception of... Um, uh, of the Red Wizards of Thave. Though notice even there, what is the central, um, the central cataclysmic event, right? The big, massive um, death spell that was being set up and cast by the Red Wizard used an artifact, right? That horn uh, that gets recovered at the beginning. Um, so even that was not just divine spellcasting. Um, with through through the power of an evil deity, um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm not. Um, 
I'm not. So th- this, I, th- I will now come bring to a close my period of speculation. Um, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asserting that I believe this was totally the reason why they did. It just felt to me very conspicuous and I couldn't help but ask the question. I couldn't help but wonder, um, are they, were they, how conscious when they were making that choice, that extremely striking adaptation choice, how conscious were they of this dynamic? Were they concerned? Um, uh, were they, uh, were they worried about PR? in this way? Did, were they concerned that if they did have everybody casting spells like they would if it were 5e? Um, if the bard were cast, because I mean, think about it, that entire party would have been casting spells with the exception of the barbarian, right? Um, yeah. Now, point of unfairness. I said there was no divine magic. That might not be true the paladin might have cast a spell. It looked like he might have cast a holy weapon on his sword during his solo fight with the the red wizard. Um, uh, he might have done. He might have done. Uh, I wasn't really sure about that. The way that was... It was noticeable because he... Um, uh, it, it was noticeable because he 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 he, he uttered words like he um, uh, he actually pronounced words, touched his sword, and then it started to glow. Right? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Storyteller. That's that's just the one. That's just the one that I was thinking of. Um, yeah. So. Um, uh, um, that might have been. A piece of divine magic. Um, it was pretty low key, though. I, it was interesting because it was an interesting exception. I was surprised uh, because it didn't seem to fit the pattern of the other choices that they had been making. So I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, but here's the interesting thing: if it hadn't been for the, um, if it hadn't been for the casting of that one spell would there have been any evidence that he's a I mean he was identified as a paladin what's what makes a paladin a paladin how is a paladin different from a fighter um I mean there could list many ways right from the rule set that would explain how paladins are different um but almost none of them were activated in the movie right so that one moment when he casts the spell on his sword, um, seems to be the um, uh, seems to be that 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 moment. By the way, so um, okay, coming back to the um, coming back to the satanic thing again for just a moment, because I see you guys talking about this storyteller and Tolkien study. Um, tieflings. They put a tiefling in the film. Now, a tiefling is a half-breed. A tiefling is the offspring of a human and a devil. I believe, if I'm correct, it is devils and not demons who who 
um, uh, give you know who uh, uh, beget tieflings, if I understand that properly. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, but you notice how they played that? She, they, they really down by, she talked about her parents in the film and it sounded like, I mean, I've only seen it once, so I might've missed some stuff there, but you know, my wife and son and I were talking about it afterwards in the car ride home and we were like, did it sound to you like she was referring to her parents? Like as if she had two human parents? Um, and my son was like, yeah, it didn't seem like they knew how, like what a tiefling was or how tieflings worked. Um, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I, I thought that that was, um, uh, yeah, I thought that, would, that, that, was, that itself was interesting. Like that they, on the one hand, I, I don't, tieflings are really popular. People really like the tiefling. I, I mean, it's like my experience in gameplay. Like there are lots of people who just love tiefling characters. Um, uh, the, the the little horns that she has, she has a tail, right? Um, but, um, uh, uh, okay, I see. So Phil says uh, uh, it's unknown whether it's a demon or devil and can conceivably be some other planar traveler. Um, yeah. I don't think. Um, well, try to remember what the PHB says, Player's Handbook. Uh, but um, uh, anyway, point is, <laughs> any possibility of demonic or devilish ancestor or parentage uh, of Doric in the film was certainly not foregrounded, right? I mean, I sort of felt that they were, it seemed to me, um, that they were uh, kind of having their cake and eating it too, right, when it came to the tiefling. Like, on the one hand, they wanted to have a character be a tiefling because that's, like, cool and fun. Um, but uh, they didn't... They were staying way, way, way away from uh, the devils and demons thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um Hmm. Okay. Well, that retcon in 5e... Is that a recent retcon? That tieflings are transformed by Asmodeus? I don't think that makes it better, actually. Being a descendant of a devil is bad enough, but saying that everybody who is a tiefling was, like, personally touched by Asmodeus and transformed? Um, don't think that would make people more comfortable, I've got to say. Um, yeah, they did change it to a, uh, later on to allow for other tiefling ancestry. Yeah, that's what I, I, that's what I thought. I was pretty sure it was devils and or demons, which I still always get. I mean, I understand the basic concept of devils versus demons as they have it in D&D, but I have to admit, I have never found that storyline compelling. Um, the wars and hell and the, you know, the blood war between the demons and the devils. Um, I've never found that a narratively suggestive plot. Um, I've never much bothered with it myself in my own gameplay, but um, anyway. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, this very interesting 
very interesting choices. Um, I don't know what you guys thought about the magic thing. There are other issues other than just than just the magic, but that was the one pervasive one that really jumped out to me. Um, there were other elements. And now, I think in part, it is very possible that they were just wanting to limit the strangeness, by which I merely mean difference from our normal world. Um, and this is a very important, this is a very important narrative choice you have to make when you're doing fantasy of any kind, right? You're telling a story that's in a fantasy world that, you know, the rules of the world in which you're telling your story are not identical to the rules of our world. Whenever that is the case and to whatever extent that's the case, how you communicate that to your viewers or to your readers is a huge part of the success of that story. Huge part. Like it's just, it's fundamental to the, to the, to the entire undertaking of doing speculative stories, right? Um, whether they're fantasy or science fiction. Um, uh, this is why I have long thought that um, fantasy and science fiction uh, are a far more challenging, uh, it, it's a far more challenging undertaking. Uh, to write a story uh, with, within that context than to write a story that takes place within our known and familiar world. Because uh, a fantasy or science fiction story has to address every single one of the challenges that are addressed by the other kind of story, but it also has this entire other additional challenge uh, that is overlaid on top of everything else that it's doing. Um, but, so again, you always have to think about that in a film, and I can easily imagine the, the choice that they're making. So again, to come back to Other Minds and Hands vocabulary here, the, the thing that I'm trying to work through, the thing that I'm trying to talk through here is I've observed an adaptation choice that they've made, and I want to think, what are the costs and benefits of this, the cost of the, we're gonna not eliminate magic, but we're gonna radically reduce the presence of magic and spellcasting in this world. Um, the cost of that is distance from the original, right? It, it becomes, I mean, a world in which bars don't cast spells, druids don't cast spells, there are no clerics, nobody gets healed. Like, it, it's jarring. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it makes it seem a very different world uh, than the, you know, the game world that players are used to. What's the benefit? That's what I'm trying to think through right now. What, it, what, what are the benefits that lead the, that uh, might have led them to make those choices? Or again, I'm not trying to get in the heads of the people who made the choice. What I'm trying to do is to say, what is the effect? Like, what, what is the consequence of that? What, what are the sort of gains uh, from that choice? And that's why I'm segueing to talking about fantasy and science fiction in general. Um, always the challenge is how do you bridge that gap between the fantasy world, the, the ways in which the world operate that are just different, and the, uh, and, and the world that everyone is familiar with. Um, and so I think the, the benefit talked about the cost. I think the benefit of the big magic decision that they made 
is that it was um, it made it narrowed the gap narrowed the gap they chose their battles basically right um, there are lots of different ways in which this world is different from our world there were a number of things you could so like let's just think about that for a second the D&D world how does it vary from our world. Well, okay. One is that there are scads of rational races, right? So you've got, you know, humans are only one out of many, many, many like dozens of like totally different civilizations which are based on like totally different evolutionary patterns, right? So um, vast multiplicity of uh, different races is one of the ways in which the D&D world is very different from ours. The presence of magic Right and the ability to cast spells, uh, and for magic to like work its way into the world in other ways, like magic items. Right, the existence of fantastic creatures, you know, dragons, displacer beasts. Loved the displacer beast. Um, I have to admit, I was like a little bit disappointed. Not in the displacer beast. I liked it. But the fact that this, the displacer beast was like the only creature that was let loose in the arena with them, such that like it, it made it look as if the displacer beast was like the big boss creature. There was a gelatinous cube, I know, um, and a mimic. Agreed. But, uh, but still, like the only creature that they released to wander around the, you know, the only wandering monster uh, that they were facing was a, was, a, a, was a displacer beast. And I'm like, displacer beasts are cool, but they're what? Like challenge rating three or something like that? Like, I'm like, I was waiting for some other ferocious beast to be released. Um, something else that, uh, you know, would have been fun. Like, I, I totally thought they might have done a rust monster, uh, just because that's always fun. Not if you're a player, but if you're a DM, it's fun. Um, a beholder, yeah, yeah, exactly. They could have released a beholder. They could have released a, eh, a wyvern or something. I don't know, a remharaz. I mean, there are all kinds of things they could have they could have done, which would have looked cool and interesting on screen to uh, to folks. I mean, there's a, there's a whole monster manual out there, right? And they had lots of options, and they were like. No, displacer beast, and we're good. I, so I, I was like, no, I, I want. That was just me being greedy. Anyway, um, uh, I um, <laughs> they could have an Otok. Yeah, sure, they could have done that, but that that wouldn't have been on my short list <laughs> of of uh, um, of, uh, of options. Um, Beholder, yeah, like again, like, you know, they had more opportunity to do it now. Maybe they're saving it for the sequel, you know, like a whatever. Um, maybe we'll get a, you know, a, a, not only a Beholder film, but a film uh, featuring Xanathar or something, uh, possibly. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked at all for that. Um, but um, so maybe they're just saving it. Oh, I did like the the uh, the intellect devourers. That was fun. Um, but anyhow, okay. Point is, so again, you've got multiple races. You've got spellcasting. You've got like sort of magic, discovering magical things in magical places throughout the world and you've got beasts right, the the beasts and the magical creatures and the abominations and all that kind of thing um I, that's a lot of ways in which that world is different from our world um and so one benefit that I see of making the choice about spellcasting that they made is that you um uh 
it limits those ways. Um, and it limited it in an important way, because, of course, our chief point of contact with that world were the main characters, right? The party itself. So the choice that they made was not to make the world as a whole less magical. It still had the magical creatures. It still had magical items and things floating around. It still had... Um, uh, it still had the first thing that I was talking about, which I've already forgotten. <laughs> I've already forgotten my list now. Um, uh, oh yeah, the races, the multiple races. Yeah, it still it still had all that stuff. But they chose to to make our point of contact, our frame of reference, with the story, the main characters, the central characters of the thing. They chose to make those much more like us, so that we and and, and therefore, it enabled the characters um, to serve as a as a as a bridge more clearly into that world. And of course, this is it's noticeable that the more um, uh, the more. The party was assembled, uh, you know, over time through the film. The character that we start with, the core character, the bard protagonist, is the least magical of all the characters. And Holga, right, who is with him from the beginning. The two of them don't do magic at all. The barbarian didn't even officially rage. I was kind of thinking that there were some rage-esque qualities to some of the big fight scenes that she had. Um... But uh, which were sort of fun. But again, there was not a like she has initiated barbarian rage in some kind of demonstrable and external way. Um, uh, she again. So those two were essentially non-magical entirely. Right. And then as we added members of the party uh, over time, um, the sorcerer, the druid, the paladin. Right. Um, uh, all of these there were more like alien elements to them half elf sorcerer who can do magic um uh but um uh and you know the druid who is who does wild shape who is non-human and does wild shapes but she's uh but she doesn't cast spells right so uh all of these i do think that one of the effects and, and i think it worked was helping to sort of establish that bridge for viewers so at the end you know, what's my analysis of that choice? Like, as cost-benefit, I think it, it was costly. Um, it's one of the things that... Seeing how spellcasting was going to work and what spells they would use and how they would deploy them um, was a thing that my son and I were both very excited about going into the film. And it was one of the things we were a little disappointed by. Um, as people who know the original text, right, and who are invested in the original text and came to the adaptation, it was, we felt the lack of it. We felt that, that it was missing. Um, but, I, I mean, I can't condemn it as a choice. I think it, I think it, there were ways in which it definitely worked. It definitely worked well um, and was really, and was really interesting. Um, and there were some ways in which they tried to compensate for it, like the way they leaned into the wild shape ability of the druid. Um, and made that even cooler and more spectacular than it is in the uh, in the actual game mechanics. Um, yeah, um, 
and by the way, I, I get, we're I'm about done. I got to I got to sign off here soon. But the last thing I can't help but say is um, I love my son and I were cracking up about the the my favorite inside joke in the whole film um, was the joke about the thaumaturgy spell that Simon was casting in his show, his magic show that he was doing. <laughs> um, uh, the smell of fresh cut grass. Oh man, that was so good. It was so good. So um, the for, uh, so for those who don't play the game, there's this spell called Thaumaturgy. And um, it's, it's, and prestidigitation, the two of them together, basically. Um, there are these two spells, and both of them are really low-level spells, and they're both completely useless. They're, like, very flexible but useless. Basically, the spell amounts to you can create some kind of effect as long as it, like, doesn't actually accomplish anything, right? So you can't make, like, a real illusion. You can't make it... You can't change anything. But, you know, it's like you can, like... Um, it's, it's like a party trick spell. You can make something change colors. You can um, uh, you can create a smell, right? That's in the spell description. Um, and, and those spells are there. Like, I really like those spells because those spells are designed almost to be... It's like, um, it's like the Wizards of the Coast throwing down the gauntlet in front of players and saying, I double-dog dare you to find a role-playing circumstance in which this spell is useful. Right. If you're creative uh, in how in not only just in, in casting spells like blowing things up right, and just thinking of spell casting as a mere combat uh, technique or something. But if you're really into the if you're really into role playing and into imagining yourself into the situation, you will be able to come up with ways in which these spells can serve whatever the role playing moment is. Right. But <laughs> but in practical daily life, those spells are like a running joke among D&D players. Um, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, huh, should I prepare thaumaturgy today? You never know. I might need it, right? Uh, <laughs> like, it's, it's just, it's, it's really, really funny. Um, and uh, that they actually had him doing that like they that they had a character casting that, that one of the only spells he cast in the whole movie was thaumaturgy and uh you know and 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 that everybody was commenting on how lame it was like he's like there i've created this spell of fresh cut grass oh like i've made myself slightly blurry right and you know to make yourself invisible or to make yourself really blurry is easy but to make yourself slightly blurry that's really hard right oh man it was such a rich and delightful joke uh like inside joke about that spell that i thought it was uh i thought it was I, my, my son and i were in stitches in that in that scene um and then of course he goes he goes straight from casting thaumaturgy to like reverse gravity which is an eighth level spell now he didn't cast it he used it he, it was a, it was a magical item and he said later it was also a wild magic surge um but um uh anyway anyway i, I thought it was uh 
it was it was it was hilarious. So th- again, there 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 were so many things that they did they did really well uh, and really interestingly, and and there are lots of fascinating call outs to you know things that would that would really appeal in other ways. I mean, I, we could go on and talk about things a lot more. Um, there are many more things we could talk about about that kind of second level adaptation, the way in which they were adapting. Uh, the gaming system as well as uh, just telling a story from within that world um, but um, anyway I, but, but so there are many many things that I thought they did really really well and at the end of the day I thought they succeeded very well in doing remember what we've always said is the first job of any adaptation the first job of any adaptation if you're making a movie that's an adaptation what's your job make a great movie right tell a great story and they did it was a good it was a great movie I really loved it. My whole family loved it. Um, uh, we had a great time. We thought the characters were good. We thought the story was good. There was just a very great deal that we loved about that film. Totally independent of uh, of its adaptation. So, you know, they checked off the first box, and that is absolutely the most important thing. And then digging in, uh, you know, more deeply, I thought the way that they were interacting with it was, was, was really interesting. And I'll be in... I mean... I'm going to assume, I mean, this is sort of the standard assumption these days, right? Um, a standard assumption that um, uh, they, um, uh, that they're going to be more films, right? Um, even the way that the title was structured, like Dungeons and Dragons, colon, Honor Among Thieves, right? Um, seemed to be paving the way for more Dungeons and Dragons, colon, movies, right, uh, in the future. Um, so... I'm rather expecting that that will happen, assuming this movie is successful, which I think it is being successful. Um, it certainly was good. Um, but um, it, it did feel like the beginning of a series. I agree. Um, so uh, so we'll see. And I will be fascinated to see how these, if these choices, the same choices that they make continue, if they, if they um, uh, sort of modify or moderate some of the choices that they've made over time as they go through. Um, that will be, I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm here for it. Uh, JJ wants to know, will we be discussing the Super Mario Brothers adaptation? That would be fascinating to do. I haven't seen the movie. Um, uh, why not? Why not? That would be fun. Um, I think, and and honestly, I think that more and more, this is a question that's, to me, the relationship between the kind of adaptation project that a video game is and a kind of adaptation project project that a movie is, and what happens when a movie is done based on a video game, um, I, I, I am really interested in that question in general. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be... I, I think it'd be fun to talk about the Super Mario movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyhow, so... Thanks for joining me today. I gotta let you go. I'm over time here. I don't have uh, Maggie to remind me that it's time to go. Um, just to let you guys know, so I'm, we're not gonna. I'm not gonna do a broadcast next week. Maggie's still traveling. Um, she's traveling both this week and next week. She's actually like flying out to her destination this Thursday, and she's flying back next Thursday. So unfortunately, it takes her out for two weeks in a row. Um, so I wanted to. I. 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 With the. D&D movie out in the theater and that being something I'm very interested in um, I wanted to have this and Maggie doesn't know D&D that well so she was like that sounds like a conversation you can probably have without me um, so we're gonna uh, so I wanted to do this today uh, we're gonna skip next week and then we're gonna come back and we're gonna um, 
we're going to, uh, Maggie and I will return uh, and we'll do something two weeks from now. Okay. So back in two weeks with Maggie again uh, and uh, looking forward to more adaptation discussion as always. Thanks everybody. And I'll see you guys in two weeks. Bye now.